Welcome to our Anzac service this morning. For those, uh, we have many people from all different uh, nations come to Australia and so uh, I did have to explain Anzac Day a few weeks ago but for those who are new to Australia, Anzac Day is uh, one of the most significant days in the Australian calendar because we remember what people have done for us. And Anzac Day isn't a celebration of war. We're not here to promote war in any way at all this morning. But what we want to do is we want to remember those who have fought for our nation and have died for our nation. And this morning I want to go through some of the history. I'm going to go a little bit History Channel on you this morning. I'm going to go through some history because uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the Australian army or the Anzac forces did actually turn the tide of the war on more than one occasion. Uh, They actually played a very significant part in the war and I want to look uh, specifically this morning at World War II and some of the battles in uh, Tobruk and Kokoda because it was there in those two points that were very pivotal moments in world history and without the influence of the Anzac forces the world as we know it today could look very, very different. In 1941, uh, Hitler's army had swept their way through Europe very, very easily. Very little resistance was able to be held up against them. They had uh, this uh, new form of war, tank warfare. They had uh, General Rommel, who was a master tactician in war, who uh, pretty much invented this idea of blitzkrieg war, which was basically tanks roll in, destroy everything, and infantry follow behind and mop up. And uh, the Allies had no real way of overcoming this. And so as his forces swept through Europe, they were unable to uh, defend against this. And it looked very much like Hitler was going to uh, win very, very easily. After he goes through Europe, he decides to move down into the continent of Africa, begins to move forces down into the northwestern part of Africa in the idea to sweep east with uh, Egypt in mind. He wanted to get to Egypt, uh, overtake Egypt, have that because that was a very uh, strategic place to have your forces there. You had control over uh, all of the ports and would basically have control over all of the Mediterranean Sea. And so he began to do this. General Rommel went over with them forces and uh, as happened in Europe, they they found the, the going quite easily to begin with. They were going through towns, very little resistance was able to be held up against them until they got to this small African town called Tobruk. And there, there was a, uh, a force of Australian soldiers and there were some uh, English soldiers there, I think it was about two-thirds of Australian soldiers were, were in that town. And they were told that they had to defend Tobruk for five weeks. The idea being that that would give the Allied forces enough time to rally in Egypt, to build defence, to get supplies to that town because their whole idea was we just have to defend Egypt. And so this group of soldiers, these young men, uh, went to Tobruk with the idea this is five, five weeks, five months later they were still there holding out Tobruk. They were affectionately became known as the Rats of Tobruk. That these were young men who simply resisted and resisted and resisted the might of the German army that had never been resisted before. In fact, until this point, the German army had never been repelled 
up until this battle. And General Rommel was unable to crack this town of Tobruk because of a bunch of Aussies. You look in 1942, the next year, uh, there was something similar happening in the Pacific. That uh, Japan had also declared war and again they were beginning to move down from Japan through Asia very, very easily. These were well-trained soldiers who did not fear dying. In fact, they welcomed dying. And so they were able to move very swiftly and easily down through Asia. They took Singapore, which is a very strategic uh, port there as well. They took that easily and they had their eyes then on Australia. And in order to take Australia, their plan was that they were going to land in the northern part of New Guinea, make their way down through the Owen Stanley Ranges in what has become known as the Kokoda Track or the Kokoda Trail, uh, and take Port Moresby. And from there, from Moresby, it would be very easy to launch uh, an all-out attack on Australia. And so the problem being that as Australia became aware of this strategy, that their forces were in Europe. And at that time, the Australian forces weren't under their own command, they were under the command of England, and it was very hard to convince the English army to release all the Australians to, uh, to help fight against uh, the, the Japanese terror, the threat, because uh, England was under their own threat, just about, uh, Germany was just about on their doorstep. So Australia had to uh, quickly uh, get these Second-hand soldiers, if you like. They were, they were known as chocolate soldiers because it was thought they would melt in the heat of battle. And these were guys that didn't go to Europe. These were the older guys or the younger guys or the guys that didn't quite make the, the medical uh, examinations. And these guys went to Kokoda and uh, they began to uh, walk up the Owen Stanley Range. They met the Japanese soldiers about halfway uh, and were uh, very easily run over. The Japanese soldiers, as I said, very, very well trained, hardened in battle. And they began to fall back and the Japanese army came again and they mounted a few little resistance here and there, but their only real strategy was let's just keep falling back and defend, fall back, defend, fall back, defend, until eventually the Japanese army got as far as 100 metres from Port Moresby. They, they could see the city lights. But it got to the point where Australia had pulled back far enough and defended for long enough that the Japanese supply line had run out. So their general invented a term because the Japanese didn't know what retreat was. They had no word for retreat. So rather than ordering his soldiers to retreat after they could no longer supply them, he ordered them to advance to the rear. They turned around, they began to fall back, and they did not make it past that point again for the rest of the war because young Australian men said, we're going to defend our nation to the end. And there is something about the Anzacs. Because really Australia and New Zealand together, we, 
we shouldn't have the influence that we've had over the wars, but there's something about the spirit of the Anzacs which is very strong. Chester Wilmot, who was a famous ABC reporter of the war, said this about it. He said, The inspiring and binding force in Australian life, it isn't tradition or nationalism or social revolutions. It's a simple thing. Henry Lawson called it mateship. The spirit which makes men stick together in Australia by sticking together men have defied drought, bushfire and flood. In war they've scorned hardship, danger and death because no digger would ever let his cobbers down. In Tobruk and also Kokoda for the first time in this war, the Germans were thrust back by a spirit that even tanks and dive bombers could not conquer. It was the Anzac spirit. Let me look at it. I want to look with you at a story that we find in the Bible in 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath, because this is very much the picture of the Anzac forces, a David versus Goliath battle. Verse 40 starts out, says, Then he, David, took his staff in his hand. He chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, put them in a shepherd's bag and in a pouch which he had, and the sling was in his hand. He drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore his shield went before him. When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that they all may know that there is God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David, therefore David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, killed him, cut off his head with it, and when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. We'll look with you firstly at everyday heroes. We live in the age of the superhero movie. Hollywood has figured out you don't have to make a good movie, you just have to put superheroes in a movie in order to make money. And this reality has has caused us to believe that superheroes only come in a specific form. That if you are not bitten by a mutant animal, if you are not injected with a serum after being cryogenically frozen, if you are not... Uh, land to earth from another planet or if you are not a billionaire with a grudge you cannot be a superhero (laughs) this is not true Hollywood's lying to you this is not true this is not what we see in history nor is this what we see in the Bible 
Here David, as he comes to the battlefield and he sees Goliath, he is not King David. He is not the great mighty man that we all tend to think of him being. He is not at all. He is a young boy. He is not a soldier. In fact, he shouldn't have even been there. He was not there to fight. He was there to deliver a cheese platter to his brothers. He wasn't part of the army. He was out tending the sheep for his father. And his father, Jesse, says, "Uh, David, uh, here's some cheese. Take it to your brothers in the front line. They're they're the strong soldiers. And so he goes and delivers this. uh, And when he gets there, he sees that the super strong army of Israel uh, isn't that strong. And there is no one standing up against Goliath. David wasn't considered good enough to be in the army. The real battles were to be left to real men. You just stay here and look after the sheep. The same was true of the Australian soldiers as well. One soldier fighting in North Africa said, We're only a crowd of civilians from every walk of life. We left our homes and our loved ones. We felt it our duty to fight for our nation. These were not battle-hardened heroes. They were just everyday people like you and I. In 1933, uh, a general, uh, Australian general, General Sturdy, this is 1933. This was seven years before the start of the war. He said of what the Japanese threat would be, he said the Japanese will act quickly. They'll be regulars, fully trained and equipped for the operation. They'll be fanatics who like dying in battle. Our troops will consist of civilians hastily thrown together with little training, short on artillery and possibly short of gun ammunition. And that's exactly what happened. In the years leading up to World War II, uh, young German boys were being taught discipline, uh, were being taught that it was not only their duty, but it was their destiny to take over the entire world, that they were a superior race, uh, that uh, everyone else was subservient to them and they belonged in the upper echelon of society and everyone had to rule them. The Japanese boys were taught that to, be, to die for your emperor was the highest calling. The emperor of Japan at that time didn't just say, I am like God. He said, I am God and you are to serve me as such. And Japanese boys grew up with that. That notion of to die for their God would be the greatest calling. The Australian boys, meantime, were kicking footballs and chasing girls. Because <laughs> I think that's what Australian boys do. They were living their normal life. They were on the farms. They were getting a job at the bank. They were shearing sheep. They were doing just everyday life. They weren't soldiers. They weren't men that you would say, these guys are going to fortify our nation. And you had men by the names of John Johnson, 37 years old, married with seven kids. His wife was pregnant He didn't have to go, but he went. You had young men like Stan and Butch Bissett, young rugby players who said, well, I just want to fight because that's that's the Aussie spirit. Bert Kinzel, Beer Wright, Jeffrey Vernon, you can mention so many different names. And like Pastor Sam said, I'm sure every one of us could have someone that you know, either a father or a grandfather or a great-grandfather, an uncle who stood and said, I am not 
uh, trained for this. This is not my vocation, but I feel a call to fight because I will not let oppression get in the way of my nation. And something happened to these guys when they get on the battlefield and we hear the phrase of rising to the occasion. And this is what happened to young David as he gets to the battlefield. He rises to the occasion. And these men who, uh, you know, stepped onto the battlefield and uh, as just everyday guys, as the blaze of bombs and bullets runs over the top of them, something happens in who they are and they emerge battle-hardened heroes but they're everyday men. I believe that spirit is alive today. I believe that today God is looking for everyday heroes. I believe that God is looking for men and women who would uh, maintain the sanctity of their marriage in a society that says it's not important. I believe that God is looking for parents who will raise godly children and invest into their lives the things of God and discipline and spirituality that as they grow, they will become a generation that will influence the world. I believe that God is looking for people who would serve His house and give of themselves to see others come to faith in Him. I believe God is looking for people who would uh, put others before themselves and be everyday heroes. The Anzac spirit hasn't left us. It may take a different form today, but it's in us. You can be an everyday hero. I want to look secondly at courage. There is a a built-in mechanism within us which is called the fight or flight response. Uh, Essentially what this is is that when you see uh, danger, you either run away or you fight it. Generally, they say that the majority of the population, uh, flight is the default option. When danger's there, we we run and, and that's just... It's part of our maker. Uh, part of the training for soldiers is to kill that flight response that, that in the face of danger, they will not run, but they will only fight. David, in our text, comes to the battlefield and he sees the soldiers who have not had that flight response destroyed yet. He comes to the battlefield and, and if you read the story, the, the army of Israel is hiding behind rocks. They've seen Goliath, who is an absolute monster of a man, and he's saying, send someone out and fight against me. And rather than fighting against him, they run, they hide. Even King Saul, who was, who was the king of Israel, who was the tallest man in all of Israel, the strongest man in all of Israel, he was hiding, he was fighting, he was in his tent, pretending to do some paperwork probably to say, I'm busy, I can't fight this. And David has to find some courage. And it's not that he didn't feel fear, but he overcame that. And that's the essence of courage. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. He understood why he was there. He understood that I am standing for my nation. I am standing for my God against this enemy. 
He wasn't intimidated by the superior size or the superior firepower, and he was not going to allow his nation to be held at ransom. If you look through the history of Australian conflict, time and time again, you see the Anzac forces coming up against a far superior, far better equipped armies. Be it in Gallipoli, in Tobruk, in Kokoda, in El Alamein, in any other battle you can possibly name, you'll find that uh, the enemy had superior weaponry, had superior advantage, and the Australians uh, uh, you know, were, were there fighting against that, and you could almost hear the words of Goliath of the enemy, are you, are you, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? That it didn't seem like they should be able to have any impact or influence. Into Brook, the Anzacs took on the might of the German panzers, these, these tanks. These tanks that were completely unstoppable. There was a battle that happened in, in Easter, 1941, called the Easter Battle. And so General Rommel had been trying to take Tobruk. He'd tried a few different things and nothing worked. And so he fell back to his favoured uh, technique, which was a blitzkrieg. So you find the weakest line and you just send tanks in, you send infantry behind them. The Australians knew this was, work, this was coming. So what generally happened is you, uh, armies would fire against the tanks as they came in, use up all their weaponry, then the infantry would come in. The Australians didn't do that at all. They simply let the tanks roll through waited for the infantry to come and then they got up from all of their, their spots that they'd hidden in and began to fire and uh, come against this uh, and the Germans actually had to retreat. The, uh, they, they completely wiped out a, a battalion of infantry and one German soldier there said, I cannot understand you Australians. In Poland, in France and in Belgium, once the tanks got through, the soldiers took it for granted they were beaten, but you're like demons The tanks break through and your infantry keep fighting. They wouldn't quit. They refused to give up. It didn't matter that the enemy was stronger and superior. They continued to fight and they were able to hold this position which was considered an impossibility. Towards the very end of that five-month siege, a lot of the Australians had been, uh, were being taken out for rest uh, and redeployment in other areas. Uh, but there was still a, a, a small number of them left. But uh, by this time, things had really turned around and they had the Germans on the back foot. And there was a battle happened where a, a group of Allied forces with some Australians there uh, charged against a German stronghold. The Germans actually turned and ran uh, from that. But one of the Germans that was captured said to the Australian soldier, uh, where are you from? And the soldier answered, where are Australians? And he said, no, 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 you must be the English because the Australians are being removed. The Australian soldier showed him his Australian badge and said, no, we're Australians. And he said, no, you're English. You're just dressed up like the Australians to scare us. (laughs) (laughs) And the Australian troops developed a reputation to be brave soldiers wherever they went. They were were not the most disciplined soldiers. (laughs) They didn't do the whole yes, sir, no, sir thing very well at all. But they were very brave. 
General Ataturk, who was the general uh, of the Turkish army in Gallipoli, said of the Anzac forces that they were an honourable enemy. General Rommel, uh, the German commander, said that they were the best soldiers he had ever seen. In Kokoda, a man by the name of Private uh, Shignori Do, a Japanese soldier, said this of something that he saw. He said, I remember an Australian soldier wearing just a pair of shorts stripped to the waist, came around toward us, throwing hand grenades at us. And I remember thinking at the time this was something that would be very hard for a Japanese soldier to do. I suppose the Australians had a different motivation for fighting. But this soldier, this warrior, was far braver than any in Japan. And when I think about it now, it still affects me. Reminds me of a story of a man named uh, Bruce Kingsbury. Bruce Kingsbury was in uh, Kokoda, was in one of the earlier battles there. uh, And his... Uh, platoon was being hit very, very hard. They were trying to defend against advancing Japanese uh, soldiers. They were unable to do this. They were taking a lot of injuries, a lot of casualties, a lot of people dying around him. And something happened in him that he simply refused to accept that they were going to be overrun. And he jumped out of his completely own accord, jumped out uh, of the barricade around him, grabbed his brand gun, began uh, firing from the hip against all the Japanese that was uh, shooting upon him. Uh, This took all the fire away from his men, allowed them to retreat and find a better defensive position. He was able to uh, take out a number of Japanese soldiers before he was shot by a sniper. This man was awarded the highest honour of bravery because he had courage. He was no doubt very scared. But it was the courage in him that said, I am not going to allow this to happen to my friends. I'm going to have some courage. And we need courage in the face of adversity. Can I say again, the Anzac spirit is not dead. Will you have courage in your life, in your workplace? Will you fight against cultural norms that simply aren't what we believe to be right? Will you stand up and fight for what you believe? Will you stand up and share your faith and uh, have conviction? Have courage in the face of adversity. These were ordinary men. You can read story after story after story of the heroics that they did. There is nothing to say that we cannot have the same courage today, that we do not have to shrink in the corner because we're Christians or because we have faith or because we want to say, no, we don't agree with that. We need to have courage. Finally, this morning, I want to speak to you about sacrifice. There are so, so many stories I could have mentioned today, and I, uh, I have a great love of war history, and I've read a number of books, and uh, you know, I could go on for a long time about the different stories, but what binds them all together is the sacrifice that these men and women made for their nation and for their mates. In our text, David willingly goes and fights a man who could so very easily kill him. And it's so easy for us to read this story 
Because we know the outcome. We, we know, we've, you know, from Sunday school, from a very early age, we know that David beats Goliath. But for him in that moment, it wasn't a certainty. And he could so easily have lost his life and the story of David could have been ended right there and the freedom of the nation of Israel could have been handed over to the Philistines. And this nation owes a great debt to the hundreds of thousands of men and women who have stood up and said, this may cost me my life, but I will stand in in the gap. I will stand in between my loved ones and the enemy and put my life on the line because I believe in the values of our nation. I believe in the freedom that we so treasure 200,000 200,000 never came home lost their lives in a foreign nation still laying there today to fight for the freedom that we enjoy 100,000 injured Can you imagine that devastation? Can you imagine being a parent? Your child's in a foreign land fighting. Every day you're afraid. Every day you wait for a knock at the door or a telegram. And can you imagine seeing the postman coming with the telegram? Reading the news that your son is never coming home. How do you tell a wife that her husband is lost? Many of those wives were newlyweds. They never got to enjoy time with their new husband. How do you tell a small child that daddy's never coming home? Imagine the devastation. But for a moment, can you imagine the flip side of that? That those men and women never go, never stand and fight. And that allows men like Hitler and Emperor Hirohito to say, I am in total control. Can you imagine how your world would look if men never stood and fought, never sacrificed, never gave of themselves and simply said it's, it's too hard and, and the enemy had won, that we would not be here today. Or if we were, life wouldn't be as you know it. Because the freedom that we have is not free. The freedom that you enjoy and take for granted is not free. It was paid for in blood. It came at a cost. The freedom that you have to uh, vote for a government and then complain about that government is not free. The freedom that we have this morning to come and lift up the name of Jesus and worship our God and speak freely and say, I am a Christian, is not free. 
It came at a cost. It came at a cost. General Ralph Honor, one of the Australian generals, said this, how do we remember them? They died so young and they missed so much. They gave up so much, their hopes, their dreams, their loved ones. They laid down their lives that their friends might live. Greater love hath no man than this. And you might recognize those words as Scripture. John 15, 13 and 14. This is Jesus. Greater love hath no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And he turns to his disciples and says, you are my friends. And I cannot divorce Anzac Day from what Christ did for us. Every Anzac Day, I remember our soldiers and our troops and I'm so grateful for what they did, but it it always pulls me back to Jesus. That he would sacrifice his life and just like David turns up and he sees the mighty men hiding behind rocks, he says, well, I will fight the enemy. Jesus looked at humanity and saw us hiding in fear of the enemy, saw us hiding in fear of death and sin and disease that was upon our life. And he said, I will not allow this. I will stand in your place. I will fight the enemy. I will take the place of the hero. I will sacrifice myself that you can live. I will lay down my life that you can enjoy freedom. And Jesus gives himself for us, lays down his life and defeats the enemy so that you and I can enjoy the freedom that we so often take for granted. Because freedom isn't free. Our nation's freedom isn't free. Your soul's freedom isn't free. It was paid for. It cost bloodshed. And this morning, we haven't come to celebrate war at all, but we've come to remember the cost. And we've come to be grateful for the outcome. And we are so privileged that men have, and women have stood and said, I will not allow oppression to rule and reign. I will sacrifice. I will go. I will give of myself. I will put myself in a position of danger because I want to see this nation grow and develop in its ideals, in its ideology, in its freedom. Because freedom is not free. Can we stand for a moment? We want to have just a moment of of commemoration. And what I want to do is have just a moment of silence to remember those that have fallen, those that have returned with the, the horror of war still burnt into their minds, those that are there even today. We have many men and women serving today for our nation. And we want to take a moment just to remember those, honour those in silence if we could.
The Ode says that they shall not grow old as we who are left will grow old. Age shall not weary them nor the years condemn at the going down of the sun. And in the morning we shall remember them lest we forget. Can I have every head bowed, every eye closed? We want to pray this morning. I want to ask this morning, just first off, if if you're here and you're not a Christian, perhaps someone's brought you here or you've simply come along this morning, you would not call Jesus as your personal saviour. You've not invited him into your heart. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. Jesus stood in your place and died that you could have freedom and liberty. That You don't have to live with guilt or condemnation. You don't have to try and make yourself good because the righteousness of God wants to come upon you and help you with your... And if that's you this morning, if you would lift your hand and say, I want to receive Jesus into my heart and into my life. I want to receive that sacrifice that was made for me. Thank you. I see those hands. God bless you both. Would there be anyone else? You would say, I want to become a Christian this morning. I want to hand my sin over to Jesus. I can't bear it anymore. I want to be forgiven. I want a new start. I want hope. I want redemption. want to pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that you've given, that you gave your son. We thank you for these hands that were lifted and hearts that have been opened unto you and your son this morning. We ask that you would fill their hearts with your presence and that they would begin a relationship with you that would transform them and change them. Father, we're so grateful this morning for the sacrifice of men and women who have stood between us and an enemy that would seek to oppress and change our way of life. We're so grateful for those who have given their lives in foreign nations. We're so grateful for those who continue to give their lives and their service to this nation. We truly are a privileged people. And we thank you for the freedom that we enjoy, that we understand was not free but came at a cost. God, help us to remember that. Amen. 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 We're grateful this morning. We want to go out. Uh, We're going to worship God. Come back tonight. We're going to have a great service tonight. We have uh, Josh Pellows preaching. You don't want to miss out on that. Uh, And I really do appreciate your time this morning. Please hang around and have a cup of coffee. Uh, Have something to eat. Get to know someone. Thank you.